From Parkway Church in Kurana, this is the Parkway Podcast. Our prayer is that this message blesses and encourages you today as you listen. If you would like to know more information on who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. Acts chapter 13. I'm going to read it, and I believe it's going to be on the screen for us. Uh, Starting verse 1. It says, Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And the two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Let's pray. God, as we uh, look to your word this morning, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, as you've already been working and and preparing maybe the ground, Lord, for the seeds you're going to plant right now, I pray that you'd speak to every heart, Lord, that you would reveal truth to us. And it wouldn't just be something that we sit and listen to, but it'd be something that we go and apply this morning. And so direct us and lead us as, as I share. I pray that you would help me to speak clearly. But Holy Spirit, above all else, would you speak to every heart. We love you, Lord. Thankful we can do this in a country, Lord, that is free. And we think of all brothers and sisters in the church, God, the global church, Lord, who are gathering this morning. We pray, God, that you would be with them, those in countries, God, where they're under persecution. We pray for them this morning. And we ask that you'd be with them as they gather, keep them safe. Lord, and I pray that your kingdom would just grow in advance this morning as your gospel is being preached and as people are worshiping. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Let me ask you uh, this question. How many of you have ever done the road trip thing before? Took a road trip, you know, maybe a summer road trip or, you know, you just needed to get away. Anybody ever gone on a road trip? Who's never been on a road trip before? Raise your hand. Okay, maybe a few of us, we'll get you there, okay? A few years ago, Jody and I, my wife and I, uh, we, we needed to get away. We were one of those places in seasons of, of the year where we're just like, we need to vacate. And we had a week coming off of vacation, but a week just off of work wasn't enough. We, we, we needed to get away. And we had a friend who, who maybe a few months prior had randomly found a last-minute hotel deal to Myrtle Beach and they went on this beautiful trip. And so that kind of that stirred something in us, like, oh, maybe we can do this. And so we did a little window shopping online and went on Groupon and started to scout out last-minute hotel deals. And, and we've done this kind of thing before where we've just kind of looked up, you know, holidays and vacations and the what-ifs, and we've, we've dreamed and, and fantasized over what it'd be like to be in these beautiful places and how could we make it happen. And, and usually it doesn't happen. Usually it's kind of just a fantasy but we found actually some really good deals, the kind of deals that are like, we, we could probably make this work. Like, we can make this happen. And so, we, again, we had a week coming off in a couple of weeks, and so we figured out how to make it work. But we thought, how are we going to get there? Drive. I'm thinking, drive. Like, that's 15 hours, and Eli, our oldest, is three and a half. Joshua is one and a half. I'm like, this is nuts. This is crazy. Drive with fift- for 15 hours with these kids in the car. And I don't know if it was, it was Jody or, or someone else, but they suggested, the suggestion was made, we'll drive through the night. The kids will sleep most of the way. You can go right in a straight shot. And it sounded viable because most of the time we are permanently exhausted anyway chasing after kids. So we thought, hey, 
Even if we're driving through the night, we're exhausted whether we're awake or asleep, so maybe we can make this happen. Now, both of us are planners. Usually one of us is kind of like, let's do it, and the other one's like, slow down. And then if the other one's like, let's do it, the other one's like, slow down, let's, let's plan it out. But usually we need some sort of a plan in place before we make things happen. Now, I heard, though, as I was talking to different people, that if you're going to drive, especially through the night, into the States, to Myrtle Beach or Florida, maybe some of you have done that kind of drive before, that you need to know where the gas stations are along the way because you might find yourself driving in the middle of darkness, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of mountains with no gas. And I thought, that's a scary thought. And so I, I messaged a friend of mine who was a trucker, and he'd done this route before, and I said, hey, I'm planning on doing this thing. Can you help me out? You know where things are. And so he's like, sure, I got you. And he planned literally our whole route on Google Maps, and he said, drive this. And he handed me literally the step-by-step, step, and it worked. And so off we were. We had our, we had our hotel booked. We had our, our, our bags packed. We brought as much non-perishable food items that we could to bring across the border so we couldn't have to buy things over in the States. And we planned to cook meals in the hotel room and the, anything that could be done in a microwave or, or just sandwiches so we could spend the least amount of money as possible. And off we were driving through the night. Now, the kids thought it was amazing because they were on this road trip. And they were sleeping in the most uncomfortable positions possible. Every time I'd look back, they're just stuck in this chair, right? Just like, like with a head to the left or the right or behind them. But, but they'd wake up every so often, and they woke up in the morning, and they were just pumped. They were excited. They, they thought it was amazing, the trip to the destination. I was, like, exhausted beyond belief. I was like, we have a whole day with these awake kids, and I'm already spent. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Now, I don't do coffee. Here's my problem. I don't do coffee. I know some of you are thinking you're crazy. I, I, don't, I can't do the taste. I don't, know how to, I don't mind an ice cap once in a while. I can do that because it's cold and it's refreshing, but I don't do coffee. So my, my drug of choice through the night was, was chocolate. Chocolate got me through in, in podcasts and, and audiobooks and, and a lot of prayer. And I, interestingly enough, what began our two-year journey that actually led us to Parkway started on that trip. And this is just a side note. We, I often find myself when I'm on long drives, I'll listen to, to audiobooks and podcasts, and I find myself thinking and praying through stuff. And, and it was on that journey that God first put a thought into my mind. And when Jody woke up to, to, take, to switch us over, uh, I said, hey, uh, we might be doing something. She's like, oh. But that began this kind of journey. But all this to say is this, this trip was exhausting, but, but it was exhilarating. It was exhilarating, and the, and the kids loved it. And the amazing thing about it is when we look back, what, what is most memorable for me is not so much what we did there, but just the journey too, right? Sometimes we can get so focused on the destinations that we lose sight of the journeys, right? Like in the, and life is a journey, and, and faith in Christ is a journey. And sometimes as, as believers, we're so focused on the destinations and where we want to go in Jesus and what we want to accomplish in God and, and what we want to see happen in our lives or in the lives of people around us that we forget to just... Just take, take a step back and, and not enjoy the journey, but appreciate the journey. Because it's in the journey that we're shaped and we're, and we're molded and God grows us. And so we, we went on this journey. And there's something about road trips, right? There's something about, about getting away with family and friends and just hitting the open road. And, and so we're starting a new series called The Summer Road Trip. And we're going to go on a little bit of a journey for the next uh, few weeks over the remainder at his. And we're going to take a trip alongside the Apostle Paul and look at his first missionary journey recorded in the book of Acts. We're going to come along his first road trip, his first missionary road trip, and just see what we can learn as, as we look at the story. And my prayer is that as we look at it, 
we're not just hearers of the word, but we're doers of the word. That we would hear the word and then we would respond to it and the spirit would speak to something um, and speak to us this morning. Amen? So a little bit of a background. This is, uh, this is us looking at the map. If you're going to go on a road trip, you need to look a little bit at the map. You need to, you need to get a, a picture of the landscape unless you're just one of those free birds and you're like, let's just drive you know, and see where we go. Well, we're not doing that this morning. We're going to look at the map. And so this is us looking at the map. A little bit background on, on Paul. Paul, uh, the apostle, is one of the most prominent figures in the New Testament beyond Jesus. He wrote a considerably large portion of the New Testament scriptures. Just so you know, the Bible, if you don't know this, is not just one book written by one dude. It's actually a collection of writings written and inspired by the Holy Spirit to 40 different authors over the span of 1,500 years across three different continents, collected and formed into this. And so the the New Testament is a collection of letters, and Paul wrote 13 books um, of the New Testament. He was instrumental instrumental in the spread of, of the Christian faith in the early church, bringing the gospel to the Gentile people and planting several churches all over the ancient Near East. He was both Jew and a Roman citizen by birth. He was both a Jew and Roman citizen by birth, which really aided in helping him minister to both Jewish audiences and Roman audiences. And when you really look at the life of Paul and you really begin to study it, which we're just, we're just taking a quick glance at this morning, you really see how his, how his background and his upbringing shaped him for the purpose God had for him. And if I could just pause a moment, can I, can I tell you that how you are designed, your upbringing and your experiences, God actually uses those as tools to, to further his kingdom. Like, you need to think about that, that you are designed and you experience things, and God uses your experiences, even the, even the negative ones, to advance his kingdom if we seek to pursue him with our lives. And so this is what we see in Paul. He's someone who was shaped by God. Now, he was born to parents who were Pharisees. Pharisees were zealot uh, religious teachers. They were Jewish nationalists who, who held a strict um, form of the, of the law of Moses. They were very legalistic. And when you think of, of all the opposition that Jesus encountered through his life and his ministry, most of the time it's with Pharisees. Most of the time it's with these, these very zealous, uh, strict religious teachers. Now, now, what they taught, and Jesus actually says this at one time, what they taught, they taught the law very clearly. And Jesus actually says, like, listen to what they're saying, just don't do as they do. Because they taught it very clearly, but they were incredibly hypocritical. So, so, so uh, Paul grew up to, to Pharisees. He would grow up under this strict observance of the law. He went on to go learn under a well-known uh, rabbi known, known as Gamaliel, who was a, a leading authority in the Jewish church, and you actually see him mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul, Paul is his Greek name, and that's his Roman name, and Saul is his Hebrew name. It's not uncommon for someone who was born in Tarsus, which was a Roman colony, a Roman citizen at the time, but grew up and studied in Jerusalem to have two names. And more often than not, it's believed and taught, which is a common misconception, that Jesus changed his name from Saul to Paul in his ministry, when he was converted. But that's not the case. In fact, when you look throughout the, the book of Acts and the New Testament there, you actually see that, that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, begins to refer to him as Paul as he begins his ministry to the Gentile people, to the different audiences. 
right? And it's interesting when you think about missionaries, what they often do when they go to different cultures and different nations is they, they learn the language. They learn the customs, and they, and they begin to live a life in such a way that they can step into that culture and reach those people. And so you see this in Paul going from Saul to Paul. He's stepping into a different audience. He's reaching a different people, and so he's referred to by his, his Roman. His encounter with Jesus in Acts chapter 9. You can I'm giving you a lot of information really quick. It's okay. Breathe. We'll get there. The general idea of, of apostles and apostleship is mission. An apostle is a sent one. It's a, it's a commissioned person for a purpose and a mission. And you see the, the term apostle is used in the New Testament specifically for those who have uh, firsthand knowledge of Jesus. So they're not people who, who heard about Jesus from someone else or was preached to them or they learned it through the scriptures, but they encountered and walked with Jesus. Apostles were also those that were appointed by Jesus himself. And so while we still have apostles today who function in a similar mission and ministry, they don't carry the same mantle and authority as the, the 12 apostles and, and subsequently Paul as well in the New Testament. Um, Paul went on three missionary journeys recorded in the book of Acts that we see. And the book of Acts really outlines what, what the early church was all about. And so if you're like, what happened after Jesus? We don't have anything that, about Jesus, you know, in the church and Christians. What happened after Jesus? Well, we do. It's the book of Acts. It's the sequel. It's the, it's the second movie, right? You ever, you ever watch movies and you come to the end of it and you're like, oh, my goodness, I can't wait to see what happens next. Well, that's the book of Acts. What happened when Jesus left? Book of Acts. What, what happened to all these Christians and these believers when, when Jesus ascended into heaven? Well, you got to look at the book of Acts. It's a continuation of the story. And so, and so in the book of Acts, up until this point, um, Christianity is growing. Are you guys with me so far? Everyone with me so far? We're looking at the roadmap, right? Christianity is growing. Uh, Jews are being converted. And Christians are starting to receive persecution for their belief and their faith. And so they're spreading. It was interesting when you look at the book of Acts, the spread of the gospel actually began because of persecution. Because persecution forced the believers to spread out. And so wherever they spread, they brought the gospel with them. And so Christianity is spreading and God begins to open the door to Gentile people. I've mentioned that word a couple times. A Gentile is someone who's not born of Jewish descent. They were, they were grafted into the family. Think of, a, think of you who plant trees and you take one tree and you, you attach it to another and you graft it in. All of a sudden you've got an apple tree that's also growing something else. They're, they're grafted into the family. So if you were born a Jew, you're a Jew. But if you weren't born a Jew, you're a Gentile. And I'm not, I don't know everybody in this room, but I'm assuming most of us here are, are Gentiles. So whenever you see that word, you've got to think like that. And so Gentiles are, are, are the door is opening to Gentiles, uh, the church is expanding, and local congregations are being planted all over the first century world. And I just want to pause here and let you know that part of what we do as a church is we partner with an organization called ARC. ARC is an association of relational churches, and basically it's an interdenominational network of churches that come together to spread the, the gospel across Canada, actually the United States as well, by planting churches. And so part of our missions budget is actually set aside to plant more churches because the gospel is spread that way. You see that in the New Testament. You see that in the book of Acts that over. And we're beginning our journey today looking at the local congregation in Antioch. You with me? Good. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, 
Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So in this church, there were people, there were named people, five guys who had gifts that they used to serve this church. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4 that God gave the church apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip the church. These are people with gifts used to serve God and serve the church. There are people who have, who have abilities and spiritual gifts that are used to build up the church. Now this, I need to note this, this is not just the elite, right? This is not just the leaders in the church. And often it's, and I'm not, I don't disagree with it, we'll, we'll, we'll push a five-fold ministry. We look, we look for one guy who's got all five. No, we look to a people group who've got lots. And, and we, we see people who rise up with, the, with different gifts of, of, of eva- a gift of evangelist or a prophetic ministry or, or a teaching ability or an apostle-style ministry or a, or a heart of a pastor. You don't have to be in the role of a pastor, in the leadership commission role of a pastor to have a caring heart, a pastoral heart. And so these were people in the church who had these gifts that were used to serve the church. In this church... There are people with this, these gifts, and I, could, and I could name them, but for fear of missing anyone, I won't. But there, there are people in the kids' ministry. There are people in, in serving in adult ministries and serving in groups and, and running things that have this gift. There, some of you are sitting right now, and you already in some way, shape, or form function in this gift to build up this church. That's, that's, that's what he's talking about. There, there, there are named people, and their role is to equip the church. Now, here's what you need to know. Jesus is for the church. This is, this is a message all about the church this morning. Jesus is for the church. He loves the church. He designed it. He created it, and he purposed it to advance his kingdom. It's, it's his plan. It's his plan, and it's his design to use the local church to advance his territory and to also see it grow spiritually and numerically. Deep and wide. You remember that song? Deep and wide. Deep and wide. I'm alone in this. It's okay. We'll keep going. As I do this little jig with my arms. So the, the church grows, and I feel like I'm a broken record when I say this a lot. The church grows when people use their God-given abilities and gifts to serve the church. We will not grow. We will not grow. If you don't sow with your gifts. Why isn't the church growing? Weren't people being reached? Well, what are you doing about it? Pastor, you should do this and you should do that. Absolutely, but I'm only one person. But if we do, well, I can, I can clean up garbages. Fantastic. We need garbages cleaned up every week, believe it or not. Well, I can, I can, I can hold the you know, a door open for someone, or I can, I love kids, or I can facilitate a group. We're going to be looking, just as a side note, for people who have an ability to teach and or facilitate groups for the fall. It's, it's our hope that in the fall we can, we can start some life groups. And I've talked about this in the past, and you'll probably hear about me talking about this with more and more intensity each, and each week. But we're looking to start life groups. We want to, to start small gatherings of, of people that we, people can connect and grow. And these can look like all sorts of different things. It could be a Bible study. It could be a, a group that just meets at Tim Hortons. And I think a few of you already do this in a, in a sense. It could be a group that, that you, watches a DVD and discusses it. It could be a group that meets over dinner and they just talk about the Sunday morning message. It could be a group that meets for basketball and they, 
and then they just build relationships. But we're looking for people that, that can facilitate that kind of thing, that have a, a knack. Now, how do, you know, how do you know if this is your gift? How do you know if this is for you? Uh, a few things. Number one is there begins to be a stirring in your heart for it, and you just can't let it go. I had someone come to me a couple weeks ago with that. They're like, I just can't let this go. That's, that's a clear indication. Number two, this one's less clear. You think, hey, I want to see the church grow. And I could facilitate something. That's a way you could do that. You, you might just say, hey, listen, I can open my house one day in the week and have people over and we can talk about Sunday's message. Or do you know what? I don't mind organizing some sort of basketball weekly on a Thursday night and then we just build relationships with people. Or I don't, I don't mind organizing or facilitating or calling people up and saying, do they want to meet for coffee at Tim Hortons on a, on a Saturday afternoon and just, and just build relationships? That's what Life Groups is all about. It's just, I, I got gifts and I want to use them to sow into the church, to see the church grow because that is how God uses and advances his kingdom is through the church, through the church. So there were teachers. There were teachers. There were also speech that reports something that God... Right? It's not something that the, the person thinks up and, and engineers in their own mind and thinks this is a good idea. It's something that the Spirit of God imparts to that person in their mind or reveals to them, and then they share it through human words. And I like to say this, that God still speaks, right? And, and God speaks in a number of different ways. Primarily, he speaks through the scriptures. You're like, I want to hear God speak. I just long to, to hear his voice. I, I long to learn from him. Read the Bible. Open up the Bible, and that's how he speaks. It, the Bible actually declares that it's living, it's active, and as you speak, it reads to you. But more than that, as God uses different things, he uses gifts. You'll see the gifts in operation sometimes here on a Sunday morning that First uh, Corinthians talks about, the gift of tongues and, and interpretation. The gift of prophecy is one of those, that God uses this to speak to people. And often, sometimes, it's, it's in a corporate setting. Don't worry, that's just somebody's phone. It's, offer, it's in a corporate setting like this. Sometimes, it's just something that's impressed to someone, and they go share with someone else. Right? That God, God uses this to speak. Now, likely in this passage, that it was through the, the, the prophets and the teachers that God spoke. Right? When we, when we read about it in the, the, all four verses, when the Spirit spoke, is likely that he spoke. He brought to mind Paul, Saul, and Barnabas, and said to someone, or few, set them apart. You know, this morning when we were in, in pre-service prayer, just so you know, we have pre-service prayer here. I'll talk about those, this in a little bit as well. Um, every Sunday morning, there was, uh, there was something impressed on me that I wanted to pray for, and I was just about to, to pray for it. And then and it was actually Sam, our elder, starts praying for it. I'm just like, man, that's, that's how God works, is he'll bring to mind to one, one someone over here, and he'll bring it to someone over here. And that's how God works. He speaks, and he reveals it through people. Now, because it's, it's spoken in human words, it can have mistakes. It can have mistakes, so it needs to be tested. It needs to be tested. And that's okay because people aren't perfect. I don't know about you, but I am not perfect. Maybe you are, but I am far from perfect. And so that's why we have to take what, what we hear and what, we, and what is revealed, and we have to go back to the Scripture and say, does this line up with the Scripture? Because God will never contradict his own word. God will never say something or reveal something that will contradict his Scripture. Never. The scriptures are the, are the culmination of God's revelation. Jesus is the culmination of God's revelation. He's not going to reveal something new. And that's, that should set off a red flag. When something contradicts the word of God, you should go, oh, I don't know. I don't know. That's why we need to test when someone, when someone says, oh, I just feel like I got this from God. Be open to it. 
but be ready to look at it against the scriptures. Does this contradict scripture or not? Does this, does this go against what God's word says or not? If it doesn't, then you receive and say, okay, you know what? Now I need to, I need to pray about this. I need to, I need to just pray about this and, and think about this. Because more often than not, prophecy is best received and best revealed and best understood when it's been fulfilled. Hindsight's 2020. Right? Sometimes we just need to sit back and say, okay, if this is of God, it will come to pass. Thank you. I'm just going to, if it comes to pass, it's of God. Because if God's got a plan for it, it's going to happen. Now, now, sometimes it might, prophecy, when it's spoken, it might, it might resonate with you because it's something you're already dealing with. There's been many times where people have spoken something over my life. I remember being in a meeting one day, a young adult meeting, and the, the night prior to, I was talking with a friend about the things I felt God was stirring my heart and calling me to do with my life. And then we we're in this young adult meeting, and the, the speaker calls me out. And he starts speaking these things. I'm like, oh, my goodness, you, were you listening to that conversation? I wasn't saying that because I knew it was God. And so all of a sudden, what was being shared, what, what God had revealed to that person, and they were sharing just in that moment, resonated with what I was already feeling and sensing, right? Uh, while prophecy uh, is something that speaks the words of God, it does not have the same authority as Scripture. We need to remember that. It does not have the same authority as Scripture. God is not going to reveal something new beyond his Scripture. Prophecy is always best understood, like I said, after it's been fulfilled. Prophecy all, often confirms something already known to the hearer. Now hear this. Prophecy today is always used to build up, encourage, and comfort the community. Even in rebuke, it's to build up and edify the church. So when someone comes and says, I got something from God, pay attention, because it could be from God. But it's always, the, the, even in rebuke, even in correction, the purpose is to point you back towards Jesus and for reconciliation. It's always for building up. It's always for encouragement. It's always for comfort. That's Christ's goal, to point you back to himself. So listen, church, we need to not shy away from the word prophecy. Sounds really religious. We need to not shy away from when God speaks. But we need to test it. We need to bring it back to Scripture. We need to pray about it. And we, we actually see what the apostles did when they felt, when the Holy Spirit spoke. It says, after they prayed and fasted, they set their hands on them. So they tested it. They tested it. There were teachers and there were prophets. There were five guys, Saul being the last. And these guys uh, were people who had authority to teach and prophesy in the church. Let's read verse 2. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the church is together. This is the key. This is, you got to grasp this. And the church is together and they're worshiping and fasting together. And in that togetherness, the Holy Spirit speaks. And it's specifically the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is not a force, but the Holy Spirit is the active person of the triune God. God is one God existing eternally in three persons. Now, sometimes Pentecostals and Charismatics get a bad rap because we, people say that we put too much emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Well, I like to say that we don't put any more emphasis on it than the Scriptures do. Because Jesus said, it's good that I go, that I may send the Counselor to you. If I don't go, he will not come. Jesus said, now Jesus is our key. It's all about Jesus. Colossians tells us that, right? He's got, he's got preeminency. But the Holy Spirit is the active one working in the church today. When you feel a move of God, 
Yes, it's God. Yes, it's Jesus. Yes, it's the Father. But Jesus is not coming in flesh. The throne room of God is not coming, and the Father's not there. It's the Holy Spirit that's working. Right? So we don't put any more emphasis on it than the Scriptures do. Jesus said, can I say this again? It's good that I go, that I may send the counselor to you, the guide who will teach you all things. It's good. So that's, that's what the Holy Spirit is here speaking. And it's the Holy Spirit who, who spoke um, to, these, to these believers and says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. While they were worshiping. Not while the preacher was preaching. While they were worshiping. Not, not while they were talking around a table. While they were worshiping. Right? Not while they were, were, you know, discussing how God can still speak today. While they were worshiping. God is moved by the collective worship in the church when they pray and fast and call upon his name. If you don't know what fasting is, fasting is the, the, the denial of nourishment and the pleasure of, of food to beat your body into submission so the spirit in you can take control and move forward so you can focus in on God. The Bible says that the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. So sometimes we need to beat the, the flesh into submission to focus in on here on God. That's the idea behind fasting is I'm going to deny myself so I can hear from and, and pursue and, pr- and press into God. So God has moved here. By the collective worship when they prayed and they fasted and called upon his name. I imagine all of heaven stopped. I imagine that, that God's like, shh, angels, shh, shh, shh. You hear that? My people are calling my name. My people, not my person. My people. My people are calling my name. And you see this all throughout the scriptures. There's constant rhetoric. They called, they cried, they prayed, and I answered. Never does the scripture say they went to church, they hoped, they talked about me speaking, and I answered. The preacher preached, and they were all inspired and shouted amen. He doesn't answer that. They called, and I answered. Do you know, we could come together, and we can sing a lot of songs, and I could preach a lot of sermons, and we can never hear from God. When they, when they called when they cried, when they worshiped. I believe that we're not going to hear from God for this church unless we call out as a church. God inhabits, the Bible says, the praises of his people. He responds to the collective. We can sing lyrics on a screen, and the band can be amazing, and the atmosphere can be nice, and not hear from God unless we are truly engaged in worship. And that's the problem with our society is because we do the... I do the thing, I do, I wake up and I do this and I go to work and then I come home and I do this and now I go to church and I go to church till this time and then I go home and I eat lunch and yes, that's all part and parcel of life. But when are we going to pause and just say, let's just, let's just not even sing the song on the screen. Now, now that's important because that helps us, right? Sometimes the lyrics say things that we don't know what to say. We don't know how to say and so I sing a song because it helps me say what I need to say in my heart. But it's when, when, they, when they called, he answered I'm reading a book by uh, Jim Simbola, who's the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. It's a, a big church in New York. And he's talking about the beginnings of his church when they were like less than 25 people. They're in the thousands now. Literally, they could not keep the lights on. They couldn't afford to keep the lights on. The pews would break as they sat on them while he was preaching. And he would pause and, and hope that they would go to the next pew and he could continue the message. But he, but he says in there, he's like, I got tired of us just talking about it. 
I didn't want to just talk about God. I didn't want to talk about experiencing God. I didn't want to talk about prayer. I wanted to pray. And so they began to pray, and they began to pray a lot. They began to focus on, on, on engaging and in, in, in calling out on God, and God began to move in that church. And people started showing up, and the church had problems. It's New York, right? Different issues in, in Brooklyn and, and different things, and, and the church began to grow. And healings began to take place because they called out. And he said this, which it just struck me. He says that prayer became the barometer of the church. Barometer is a tool used to measure air pressure in the atmosphere. So prayer is the barometer that measures the hunger of a church and the presence of God in the atmosphere of a church. Let me bring it to you as a person. Prayer is the barometer that measures the hunger in your life and the presence of God in the atmosphere of your heart. Prayer. Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting graceometer, and from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he not be there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be slothfulness in prayer. Come on. I heard someone say once that you can tell how popular a church is by who comes on a Sunday morning. But you can tell how popular Jesus is by who comes to the prayer meeting. One, of the, one scripture that has really impacted my life, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. Then. Then. So every Wednesday night, we have a prayer meeting. We have a group that meets here from prayer from about 6.30 till about 8. If you can make it, make it. And I get it. We always, not always can make it. I can't always make it. But if you can make it, make it. We have a prayer meeting that, that meets pre-service prayer. We call it pre-service prayer. So it's the prayer before the service. Um, every, every Sunday morning here around 9.35, we meet in the triple room until about 9.55, and we pray. And we pray. What do we do with these things? We pray. Some people pray out loud and some people don't. But we gather together and we pray because we want to see a move of God. And it's when we call out and he answers when we come together on Sundays, let's not just stand and, and sing an empty song. Let's engage in worship. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to do the church thing if God's not in it. Seriously, I'll get another job. I don't want to do church. I want to I see a movement of God. So let's worship. That means you've got to get out of your chair. Get out of your chair. That means you've got to stay in your chair. Stay in your chair. Let's worship. Let's engage in the presence of God. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. He spoke while they engaged in worship and prayer. And what I thought was interesting, just because there were prophets and teachers did not guarantee that they were going to hear from God in the church. It's when they, when they engaged in worship and prayer. Just because they had people who operated in these kinds of gifts does not mean that the, that the message came from them. But the message from the Holy Spirit came when the collective gathered in worship, when the collective called out to God. And I imagine that their worship was different than our worship. I imagine they didn't wait for the team to get up and lead them in song. Listen, I love that. I think there's purpose in it. I think that they do amazing. You know, uh, people talk about it. People are like, man, I love to worship at your church. I, and I'm like, yes, I agree. It's good. But listen, they weren't like, okay, so what songs are we singing today? We got three, and then we're going to pause, and Paul's going to teach for a little bit. Then Barnabas is going to come and read a scripture, and then we're going to sing some more. And listen, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's good. But I guarantee you, they just worshiped. 
and they heard from God. They worshiped, and they heard from God. And the Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, this is interesting. I hope you're with me. Like, jab your neighbor if they're, if they're not with us. Say, you got you to you hear this. See, Saul was converted from Judaism to faith in, in Jesus about 10 to 12 years before this moment. You can read about it in the book of Acts chapter 9. Saul is on his way to a city called Damascus. He's on a road physically traveling. And he's got letters from the Jewish authorities. Because he's got such a hatred for Christians. He gets authority from the authorities to go and persecute and jail Christians. He's on an, a mission, an assignment to stop the spread of Christianity. And he's on this road and he has an encounter with God. He has an encounter with Jesus and he gets knocked to the ground and he gets blinded. And he's like, who are you, Lord? Calls out and it's this encounter with Jesus. And in that encounter with Jesus and the subsequent encounter he has with a disciple named Ananias who prays for him, it's revealed that he's called for a purpose of reaching the Gentiles. 10 to 12 years before the fulfillment of that call. Are you, you tracking with me so far? 10 to 12 years before the fulfillment of the call, it was revealed to him that God had a purpose for him to reach the Gentiles. But it wasn't until a decade later that God says to the church, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas to the work I've, which I've called them. So it just makes me wonder, are you here today, church? And maybe God's spoken something to you long ago and you've forgotten about it. Or maybe God said something to you long ago, a purpose he had. Maybe it was when you were a child or maybe it was when you, you went on a mission trip or something was, was birthed in your heart. But you tabled it. You tabled it because it wasn't coming to, fa to pass. Maybe, maybe you're like, I'm decades older. My time is done. Can I tell you that the Bible says that David, King David, died when he fulfilled the purposes of God for his life. Don't die before fulfilling the purposes God has for your life. And just because God spoke something decades before does not mean that it's not coming to pass. Paul, in this moment, Acts chapter 13, 10 to 12 years, scholars say, 10 to 12 years after his conversion, it's when God said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas. Set apart for me Saul and Barnabas. A decade. Can I just tell you that just because you're older does not mean God is done with you? So Paul goes through this, this, this period of consecration from that conversion moment. Ananias comes and he prays over him and then he meets with the disciples and he begins to learn, he begins to grow and he begins to teach in the church. He begins to serve in the church, he's meeting with different apostles. He actually runs a, a, um, a benevolent program because there's a famine coming and so they, the, the churches gather food and then they, they start to distribute the food. And, and Paul is serving in the church before he serves the call of God on his life. And it just made me wonder that, that maybe we haven't yet fulfilled the God's purposes for our lives because we won't step up and serve his church. God's like, I have something for you, but you have not shown me that you're ready for it because you're not serving my church. Paul's serving in the church. He's, just, he's serving someone else's mission. He's serving someone else's vision. And then when he's done serving, as they were worshiping, it's not like, okay, God, are we ready for me now? It's while they're worshiping, he's like, okay, now it's time. A decade later, a decade later, God says in the middle of their worship, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. When I, uh, when I was a kid, I felt the call of God on my life. I was, uh, 
really young, and then I, I was a kid, so I thought nothing of it, and I did my own thing. And then I walked away from the church. I did my own thing, lived my own life. And when I was 18 years old, I felt that call again. But then I kind of went through this period of, like, wrestling with that call. So I was around 18 years old, and I went through this period of wrestling with this call and trying to figure it out. That's what actually led me to Bible college. I didn't feel like God's like, you need to go to Bible college so you can be a pastor one day. So you need to learn my word. And so I went, and as I wrestled with it and I learned from it, God began to reveal stuff. And it was after all that that my purpose came to pass. Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul. Set apart. I've set them apart. Now he says to the church, set them apart, which is interesting. I've set them apart. Now you set them apart. I've appointed them. Now you appoint them. Now, this might not be something that you like to hear, but God uses his church to appoint people to positions of leadership, authority, and missions. He works within the established leadership and people. God called Paul on the road to Damascus at his conversion, but when the time came to fulfill his ministry, God used the church to set him apart. Paul could not commend himself. He could not set himself apart. No one should appoint themselves to positions of ministry. There's no... There's no accountability, there's no unity, there's no governments, there are no self-appointed prophets, there are no self-appointed teachers, there's no self-appointed missionaries and pastors. So I felt that call of God on my life and I went through that kind of period of wrestling with the call and then when I graduated Bible college, it's not like you're a pastor now because you've got the certificate. The certificate does not, does not qualify me for ministry. It's when, the, when my first church called me and appointed me to that position and then my local church sent me off that was the approval. And then while I was serving in ministry, the, the POC, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, approved of my ministry by giving me credentials. And as much as they're saying, hey, listen, we approve of this guy. We are behind this guy. It's like Paul saying of Timothy, hey, I'm sending Timothy. He's my man, but that does not, does not appoint me to ministry. This church called me and appointed me to ministry. I didn't just show up and say, I'm the dude. They called and appointed me. And my previous church laid their hands on me, blessed me, and sent me off. This church, we vote on our, our board of deacons and our elders. We vote on them and appoint them to that position. And then we laid our hands on them. We prayed for them as they fulfilled that call and that purpose. The, the staff and the leadership appoint people to positions of ministry within, and roles within this church. Leadership ministry should always come under the accountability and approval of the local church. And that's what we see happening in the context of this text. Paul is coming under the, the authority of the church. See, God calls individuals and approves them in the church. It's how Paul functioned. Paul, who wrote 13 books of the New Testament that we read all the time, came under the authority of the church. Peter, we all know Peter on the day of Pentecost. Peter denied Jesus, Peter. Peter, who was instrumental, the rock of the church, Peter, who spoke on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people got saved, Peter, he fell under the authority of the church. You know what, I just, I'm just going to say this so you're with me on this, right? Something unsettles me, something in my spirit unsettles when, when people operate outside of a local church context. I get, I, hey, I'm not judging and I'm not condemning, but there's just something in me that goes, I don't know, because when I look at the text, and when I look at the scriptures, everything's always coming under the authority of the church. No one operates outside of authority. I don't operate outside of authority. I have a significant amount of authority over me. My wife, the board, the POC, 
have authority. We have authority over us. No one should operate as an island. It's a scary thought to be operating without accountability. So they were worshiping. And the Spirit says to the church at Antioch, set apart for me for the work which I have called them, Barnabas and Saul. And then the text says, so after they fasted and prayed, after they fasted and prayed, they tested it. Right? They hear something, likely through one of those, those um, men who operated in the gift of prophecy. And then they fasted and prayed. They placed their hands on them and sent them off. The laying on of hands of what we call it, when we, when we place our hand on someone's shoulder, on their head, was a sign of commissioning. It was a sign of approval to send off. But it was also the physical indication, that this, the imparting of the Spirit's power in their life. When you think about when you think about it, physical touch is powerful, right? Like when the, when the first time you hold that special someone's hand, whew, right? Or with a, a parent to a child, it's a sign of security and love. A child feels secure in the arms of a parent. Or it's, it could be a sign of authority, slow down, stop. But there's no power in hands. It's not, it's not the hands. It's not like, hey, I got special hands, and when I touch people, things happen. The power is in the spirit of God. This is just the sign. This is just the form. It's not a formula that every time I lay my hands on someone, some, someone's going to be appointed to ministry. Because if that was the case, I'd be like, everybody get something. Right? I'd be like, I'd be going everywhere. <laughs> like, oh, you're going to do stuff in your kingdom? I'll just, but that's not how it works. The spirit of God does it. It's just the sign. But when you look at the scriptures, when the apostles appointed seven men for the work of ministry in the church, Acts chapter 6, they laid their hands on them. When, when believers started to accept Jesus, Gentile people, they were prayed for to receive the fullness of the Spirit of God. We call it baptism of the Spirit by laying on their hands on them. This happened to Saul when he, after he encountered Jesus, Ananias, the disciple, prayed for him to receive his sight and to be filled with the Spirit by laying his hands on him. Timothy is encouraged by Paul to fan into flame the gift of the Spirit which he received when the people placed their hands on them and prayed. Many times when Jesus healed people, he placed his hands on them. He touched them, and they were healed. God uses this as a sign to impart his spirit and to commission for purpose after their hands on them, appointed them, and prayed. And then it says this, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Now, notice it doesn't say the church, yet the, the Holy Spirit told the church to set them apart. He told the church to set them apart. The church laid their hands on them. And then it says the Holy Spirit set them off. See, that's how the Holy Spirit operates, through the church. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that this message brought you closer with Jesus and gave you a better understanding of your walk with him today. If you would like to know more about who we are as a church, you can visit our website, weareparkway.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at parkway.church.